Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Barton Grimley, Strategy Director here at 11FS. And today we're going to dive a bit deeper into the world of digital commercial banking. In our recent research report published, which you can all access for free at 11FS.com, we outline the six characteristics of digital commercial banking. Automation, standardized, extendable, real-time, contextual, and embedded. So today we will take a closer look at what they are and how they can support a more efficient, more reliable and more secure industry. Or maybe not, we'll find out. We will also discuss technology's role in shaping the commercial banking sector and some of the opportunities as well as the challenges this may present to us all. All this coming up, but first a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hey folks, we have super duper exciting news. The shortlist for this year's 11FS Awards is officially live. We asked you, the incredible FinTech Insider community, to help us choose the deserving winners of the 11FS Awards, and your response was outstanding. You voted in record numbers, and it's now time to see if your favorite fintech companies made the shortlist. With a total of 10 different awards up for grabs on the big night, including categories like best experience design, fintech for good, best use of AI, and consumer game changer, there is a lot to look forward to. Don't wait. Explore that full shortlist now at 11fsawards.com. That is 11fsawards.com. And be sure to stay tuned to all of our channels to find out who will take home one of the coveted 11fs award trophies on Wednesday, 15th of November. Looking to take your customer journeys to the next level and benchmark your products against the best in financial services? Well, look no further than 11FS Pulse. Home to over 5,700 user journeys covering everything from onboarding to crypto. It features analysis of global brands like Nubank, Revolut, and Robinhood. It's already tried and trusted by big names like Monzo, whose co-founder Jonas said their research phase took just a tenth of the time it normally would, thanks to 11FS Pulse. Join Monzo and hundreds of other brands taking their UX game to the next level by booking a demo today at 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. That's 11fspulse.com forward slash demo. As always, I'm joined by some outstanding guests who can shed some light on this question. Our first guest is Pranav Sood, Executive GM EMEA at Airwallex. Great to have you on the show, Pranav. It's been a busy time for Airwallex. Do tell us what you've been up to. Firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's always great to be on the show. For anyone who doesn't know Airwallex, we are a payments platform for global businesses. So we help businesses of all sizes to collect, convert, send and spend money around the world. It's been a really hectic year for us so far. We've actually just launched uh, in Israel. We've also launched in Canada. Um, we're in the process of expanding and extending our infrastructure around the world as well. And uh, it's been great to be able to announce some big uh, customer relationships, including one with Brex, uh, which is helping them to power their international expansion as well. Amazing. You guys are growing so, so, so fast. Um, and also joining us, it's a return to Fintech Insider for Sarah Kachansky, Fintech Consultant and Advisor. For those of you who don't know, please tell us a little bit about what you do, Sarah. 
Thank you, David. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be back, uh, like the olden days. Um, so what I do these days is I'm independent, I work for myself, um, but I work with a range of organisations of all sizes, basically helping them understand the global fintech industry and what it means for them and their customers. Um, at the moment, I'm working on something really exciting, which is an organisation called WVCE. Um, we are aiming to increase diversity in the world of venture capital. Um, we had a big event uh, earlier this week, I think, 2nd and 3rd of October. Um, you know, we'll it's one of the things that I really, really love doing. So it's kind of my, my current passion project, um, if you like. Awesome. That's great to hear. And finally, we're delighted to be joined by Valentina Christensen, Director Growth and Communications at Oak North. Welcome, Valentina. And do share a little bit about what's going on at Oak North. Hi, thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, for anybody who's not familiar with Oak North, um, we launched in 2015 as a neobank focused on uh, supporting entrepreneurs. Um, to date, we've lent about £10 million to what we would sort of call the, the M of the SME or commercial uh, customers. Um, and actually, we, we um, published a report earlier this week uh, with the Social Market Foundation looking at uh, the barriers to enabling growth businesses on scale-ups in the UK and uh, how we can um, some recommendations about how we can overcome those those barriers. Brilliant. It's definitely a topic that everybody's talking about, um, the future of commercial banking, which is why we're here to today. So thanks, everybody, for joining. Let's let's dive in. So let's start with a broad look at the commercial banking landscape. So as I said in the introduction, you know, technology is playing an increasingly central role in the way that banks are, are doing business. And we're hearing this both from um, incumbent banks, new fintechs, um, big commercial businesses themselves. So it'd be good to talk a little bit about this. Valentine, I'm going to go to you first because I, I feel like your experience and with Oak North as well has got a good broad view um, of commercial banking customers. What, what do you think are the primary digital needs for commercial banking services? What are you hearing from your customers? Yeah, so I think if you look at the, the market as it is today, you've obviously got the incumbents, uh, you know, and still about 83% of businesses bank with one of the big five banks. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done for, for neobanks like Oak North. Um, and, you know, the pain points are, are all the things you, you normally hear. It's very slow to open an account. Uh, you know, there's often a very disjointed experience. You're not speaking to the same relationship manager. Uh, it's very hard to um, to see, you know, which payments are going where. Um, it's very hard to sort of put controls in place so that, for example, if you want, uh, you know, you've got a, a business credit card you don't want you know everybody in the team to have access to it you want to put certain controls in place so all of those things are, are pretty pretty painful uh, with the incumbents and then if you look at the neobanks and most of the neobanks um you know they've they started with retail propositions um and then they you know maybe with the exception of tide um but then they've sort of done retail plus or very much the sort of small micro business so their propositions are built on apps and automation, which are fine for individuals like you and me and fine for small and micro businesses where the needs aren't necessarily that complex. But once you get to that one, two million up to 100 million revenue business, suddenly you might have much more complex corporate structures, you might have entities in different locations, you might have multiple ultimate business owners. Um, and that's where there's this gap where the businesses aren't uh, being well served by either the incumbents or by, by uh, you know, most of the neobanks. And this is really where I think, uh, you know, not only uh, digital, but it's, it's sort of also hybrid, because I think the, there's a need for certain, you know, certain, certain um, products and services that those customers need. There's also a need for a, a relationship 
even if that's, you know, digital, it's still a human plays a very important role as well. So I think it's about looking at the business and then saying, what's the need and then deciding on the best approach for that need. It sounds like there's a huge amount of complexity in um, running a global business. And the more global you are, um, the more complex your supply chains are, I suppose, in some ways, the more complex your your needs are. We've got a really interesting statistic. 100% of respondents in the EACT Treasury Survey 2023 cited cash flow forecasting as a priority with tech infrastructure and replacement of IT tools also ranking really, really high. And actually, I'd like to go into this um, a little bit. Valentina, what what are you are you hearing the technical infrastructure being an issue as well? I mean, it's great for us as a business to use all of these wonderful um, tools that are available to us, but how can it integrate um, with the systems and the and the stack that we have? Yeah, exactly. I think you know, so so often businesses of this size sort of just get presented with a menu of things, um, you know, a menu of products and services, a menu of tools that they can use. And a lot of them might not be applicable to their business. Um, they might be completely irrelevant for their business. But, you know, unfortunately, the banks simply don't have the time, the resource, uh, the willingness or the necessarily the capability to sit down and say specifically for this business, these are the kinds of things that I think based on their jobs to be done need to be pr- presented to them. And, and that's something that we really try to do uh, you know, at Open Office, we sort of try to understand what is it that the customer needs and what are their pain points and then work backwards from there rather than sort of presenting a menu of options. Um, you also have to think a lot of these businesses, whilst they, you know, I mean, as I say, it's sort of the one to two million revenue up to 100 million revenue. Um, a business that has two, three, four, five million revenue probably doesn't have a hugely sophisticated finance team. You know, they might have an accountant they see once a quarter. Maybe they have a finance director. Once you go up to, you know, the higher um, higher turnover, then obviously, you know, you might have a CFO and a much bigger finance team. And then, of course, the sophistication and the tools you might be using um, will be much better. And I think that's where, you know, trying to work with fintechs that have solutions that are embedded with other fintechs. And I mean, we work with we work with a number of fintechs um, at Oak North, um, really to try to create that, you know, that optimal experience of the customer, not only at the front end, so the products and services they see, but also at the back end, the things they don't see, to try to make that uh, that experience as seamless as possible. It's always interesting to hear just how complex um, these needs are in commercial banking. And, and just on your point, Valentino, about taking a, a leaf from the book of retail banking and really understanding how um, you know, customers have jobs to be done, and we just need to figure out what those jobs are and create services in order to do that. Sarah, I'm going to come to you on this. How how do you think the needs of commercial banking differ from other retails? Are there what what, what are the similarities and differences you would you would say broadly? I mean, I think that the first thing to mention is that everybody means something different by commercial banking. You know, to Val's point, she uh, all serves the M in the SME, but, you know, what, what is an S? What is an M? What is a, a you know, a, a large scale enterprise? And I think um, sometimes that can kind of be a little bit uh, stretched. And actually, you kind of, if you're trying to serve these customers, have to have a, you know, an idea, a definition in your mind of exactly who you're trying to serve. Um, I think on the larger sort of end of things, on the, the, what we would call like enterprise banking, if you like, um, some of the, the needs that are, are different are the fact, it's truly really the scale, the size and the scale. You're moving a lot more money. You're often moving it a lot quicker. Um, that comes with more complex, you know, compliance requirements. And then that slows things back down again. So you're trying to do more things. You're trying to do them more times a day and it's more complicated because the legal team need to be involved in everything. So that prevents you from doing a lot of stuff in real time or has historically. Um, as already touched on, 
the bigger you are, the more complex your IT system is. It's just, it's just almost a statement of fact. Um, I think also we shouldn't lose sight of how old some of the ERP systems are that people are using out there. They have the enterprise resource planning systems. Um, I also did a report on this a couple of years ago, just looking at treasury management, and I was shocked to find out just how many companies that are bringing in tens of millions of dollars, pounds, whatever you want to say, of revenue are actually using a whole lot of spreadsheets as well to try and manage their accounting and their finance functions, um, which is only mildly terrifying. So if you're going to try and serve them, you, how are you going to access that information? How are you going to you know, digitize that? How are you going to find their needs? Um, and then, as has already been touched on, and, and Pranav will know a lot more about this than me, but geography, you know, the bigger you are, the more international you are, you're moving money in different currencies, makes cash flow management really difficult. You have to start thinking about FX management. Um, and again, moving money across borders, you're going to come up against different rules and different regulations, and that's going to add further complexity to any of your kind of financial dealings. Um, the one thing I would say that kind of, again, from kind of the work I've done in this area, that to be borne in mind, though, and, and again, this touches on Val's point, is everybody has a jobs to be done. Treasurers are people who know what retail banking apps look like. So they almost, their expectations are, are, change, are changing in time with that. They sort of think, if I can do this at home, if I can do this with my personal accounts, if I can use WISE to manage my FX, if you like, you know, to take that as a very simple example, why can't I do it at work? Um, and I think that that is the the bleed over is happening there, that the expectations of the people who are working in these finance departments is changing. It's so interesting. And I think you're right. It's going to vary so much based on the size of the company, the sector, the geography, all of this kind of stuff. So Pranav, I'd love to come to you about this and, and, and talk a little bit about how digital um, are commercial banking customers really? I mean, so what what would you say is a typical type of customer which uses the services that AirWallex um, provides? So I think we go after a very similar type of customer to the ones that Oaknorth address in the sense that we're not so focused on the S of, of SME. We're much more interested in businesses who are operating at a slightly bigger scale, who have a, a global footprint, who are collecting or, or sending or spending money across borders, and who are exposed to some of the friction in doing so that, that Sarah mentioned as well, and, and some of the legacy systems and processes that their existing banking providers will have put in place. I think... You know, the interesting point is the one that, that Sarah mentioned as well, which is that business owners are people and consumers as well. And so they feel and they see the advancement that is happening in the, in the consumer space and they understand some of the changes that can happen in terms of ease of use and, and UX and UI um, in, in that world and expect it in the, in the B2B side as well. But what's always interesting to me is just how little some quite sophisticated uh, business uh, CFOs or or treasury directors, how little they actually know about the way in which their money is moving around the world. And that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So it manifests itself in the idea that, you know, they think oh, we have to absolutely go and travel to America if we want to open a US bank account. Well, actually, you don't anymore. You can work with providers like us who can do that for you. Or guess what? I don't really understand how much my payment provider is charging me for FX because it's all bundled, but that's always how it's been. So that's always how it should be. And so it's a sort of paradox in the sense that people are becoming more and more attuned to the possibilities, particularly when it comes to user experience and, 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 and kind of ease of use, but they're not necessarily being um, as clear about or as well educated on some of the differences in how people can now do things versus how traditional banks have done, in, uh, have done things in the past. Valentina, are you seeing something similar on your side? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, Sarah, you mentioned about some of these businesses having large payments to make. So again, you know, you think about contextualizing things for the customer. Um, you know, if you're a property investor, the chances are you're making very, very large payments at, in one go fairly often. Now, most banks will have, um, you know, for regulatory purposes, they'll have a, a, a limit in place that if you if you want to transfer a certain amount, then suddenly it sort of um, raises a red flag and then they have to go and do additional checks. Now, unfortunately, sometimes those checks can take several days, if not weeks to, to go through. And if you're a property investor looking to sort of get your next deal off the ground, you might be on a you know fairly limited time frame then that's really not going to work by, you know, having a, a bank that's sort of saying, well, we have to go through these various checks and balances and we'll kind of come back to you. And then you call up and it's someone different the next time. Um, you know, another example is is with, uh, you know, SME house builders or property developers. Often when you're building, you know, you're going to build your next project, you have to set up a special purpose vehicle. And that special purpose vehicle needs a separate account. Uh, you can't just put the money into your existing uh, bank account. So it's all good and well, you know, that a bank may make it now easier for you to open an account. You know, near banks make it fairly easy for you to open an account fairly quickly. But if you're in that business, you need to open perhaps multiple accounts. And again, you don't want to have to go through a lengthy due diligence process, lengthy AML, KYC checks, when you've kind of already got an account with the bank, you kind of want to be able to kind of be fast tracked and get your, your, you know, your SPV account set up so that you can then start working on your next project. Equally, you might be, you know, a cash flow business like a restaurant or a hotel versus a cash flow business like a nursery, right? And a nursery knows exactly how much money they're going to have based on the number of kids that can, they can accommodate and exactly how many hours, how many are full-time, part-time, et cetera. Whereas a hotel or restaurant isn't going to necessarily know uh, how many customers it's going to have day in, day out. So that's why context and contextualizing your offering is so important for each customer. You know, it's not this sort of broad brush, oh, well, these are the products and services we offer. That's our offering. You have to go away and figure it out for yourself. It's trying to really understand what are the pain points and jobs to be done for each customer and then working backwards from there. And, and, and I suppose the counterfactual to, you know, innovation and, and digital services, to use your example of a nursery or a property developer, these needs are so niche and these organizations in some cases are so, are so complex. Sometimes when I speak to commercial customers, they say, yes, so, you know, I'd love to be using all of these systems, but you know what the spreadsheets that I'm using are actually just working. And the banking relationship that I have at the moment is, 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 is kind of fine. And you know what? Maybe I know that banking manager already and I've known them for a very, very long time. So where does the, where necessarily does the, does the impetus for, for, for change come from? I mean, we know, we know there is. So we've been talking a lot about things like cross border, cross currency with, with Pranav what you're doing at, at Airwallex. But I'm, I'm keen to talk a little bit about who is leading who. And is there any, is there any subsector where you're seeing the biggest growth where, you know, whether we're thinking about um, Oak North or Airwallex, where the bank or the fintech is leading the customer and saying, hey, these are all these wonderful things that you're not using versus the customer actually saying, you know what, I need this to your point, I suppose, um, Valentino, Pranav, we'll start, start with you. Where, where, what types of clients are you hearing leading the conversation versus you having to go in and, and, and provide that, that leadership? Well, 
We serve a lot of tech businesses, and so we power many of the most innovative technology businesses in the world. So the likes of Brex or, or Rippling or Papaya Global and, and many, many others. Also some of the biggest marketplaces, so people like Shein and, and others are using our product around the world. And those, those businesses are very, very effective at pushing forwards the, you know, the, the roadmap of innovation that we're producing because they're also testing the boundaries of what can be done and, and, and what can be um, delivered. I think when it comes to the SMEs, honestly, I, I don't think there are that many SMEs who know the landscape well enough to dictate you know, exactly what we should build for them. And even with very sophisticated businesses, so we serve companies in, in e-commerce or online travel or, or even many SaaS businesses, I generally find that they're surprised at what is now possible given the layers of technology that have been built over the last you know, five, 10, 10 years. So you know, to give a couple of concrete examples, Val mentioned some of the challenges that people have with multi-entity setups and the difficulties that come with, firstly, just consolidating the money that you have across different entities. And then secondly, doing things as, as simple as making bill payments and figuring out which entity a bill payment should come from and who needs to approve it based on the, you know, the rules and authorizations that you have in that, in that company. And people are often surprised to know that you can actually do that via something like Airwallex versus having to have a manual process where you're sending emails around the houses to go and get it done. And these are even people who are operating what by any standard you'd define as a very innovative company. So I think, you know, like Val mentioned, and, and as Sarah alluded to as well, of course, as, as fintechs, as product-led organizations, you always want to be informed by what the customer is, is telling you. And there are very good and very innovative ideas coming out. But I, I honestly think that the level of knowledge about what's possible is still relatively low. And so we have a, a very significant job to, to educate people. And I think to David, your point as well, build the credibility in what we're building such that they trust us enough to move away from whatever solution they've been working with in the past. And Valentina, from, from your perspective, I mean, what, what is the typical type of commercial customer which is pushing the agenda, would you say? So I think, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, if you think about the creation of the iPhone, I, you know, I think obviously if you can, if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. Right. And there's obviously, um, you know, examples there, I'm sure where customers said it would be great to have a mobile phone that could do X and, you know, or that I could have my, you know, my mobile phone and my, uh, you know, my iPad and iPod Nano in one in one thing and then and then obviously apple went and created it um and there's been many other smartphones obviously um so i think sometimes you know it is the 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 banks or the fintechs that are sort of leading the charge and you know you saw this in retail as well right i mean there are so many features that the likes of monzo and starling created that i don't necessarily know if the customer sort of said it'd be great to have something like gambling blocker or it'd be great to have something like the ability to freeze my card in case i think i've lost it and then i find it then i haven't gone and called the bank and had everything um you know uh, uh closed down and i have to get a new card and so on um so i'm sure that there's sort of it's it's a combination of both in terms of what we're seeing specifically it's really a mix. I mean, as I say, those are all examples that we've heard from customers, you know, of pain points. So, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a nursery business, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a, um, you know, a nursery business, again, the ability to, to manage who is able to spend on the credit card, you know, you might need certain things, whether it's the food shopping for the week for, you know, for the kids meals, whether it's, um, you know, deliveries of things like, 
uh, toilet paper and and wet wipes and things like that in the nursery. Um, whereas if you're in a hotel business, there's probably someone with a very specific role, um, you know, who's managing those kinds of things. Um, you know, and so I think uh, those are just again different pain points. So in some some cases, it's it's hearing from the customer and then saying, okay, that's something that might be a useful feature for those specific customers. Whereas obviously, if you're not a cash flow business, then you know, the ability to do cash flow forecasting isn't necessarily going to be something that you'll you'll care about or ever use. And therefore, saying you can also do cash flow forecasting is sort of a pointless thing to present to the customer, right? Because they're never going to use it. Indeed. I mean, there are some areas we can we can innovate um, where sometimes working in fintech, we think a customer might be interested or might need it, whereas actually it turns out that an existing process works works very well. And I'm, I'm curious for us to, to talk about the the innovation agenda in general within within commercial banking. And Sarah, I'm going to come to you to you first on this, reflecting on the wider fintech industry. You know, there's been a, a huge um, drive for innovation, as, as we've all seen, but there's definitely been some roadblocks some blockers in terms of advice advancing customer adoption beyond a, a certain point. Do you think we are taking innovation for granted in, in fintech in general and in commercial banking? So I think one of the things that um, has already, again, been alluded to on, on this podcast that we underestimate is people's personal resources. Do I have the t- Do I have the time? Do these people have the time to try and understand what this is and how it works and what might be better? If you're particularly, you know, it's as often said, if you're a, a small business or if you're self-employed, I, I need to be making money every minute I can be making money. So um, four hours spent working up, which is the best accountant for me or which is the best, you know, bank account for me or which is the best international payments for me is, is, is almost wasted time. And if I have the physical time, do I have the mental capacity? to actually sit down and think, okay, I've got to do all this research myself. And I do think that that extends all the way through. I think you know, if your job is within the treasury team, your job is CFO, there isn't that much time, very rarely is allocated in your time uh, to actually sit down and work out what the problems are that aren't currently being solved. To the point you made and, and you know, the point about spreadsheets, spreadsheets solve a problem. Do I have time to work out a different way of solving this problem? No, because right now I'm trying to keep my business going. And there's a lot of businesses right now that are going, I just need to keep going. I just need to work out how to keep going. I think there's potentially an opportunity there in certain uh, certain areas. You know, we mentioned um, hospitality and, and retail. How do I save money? How do I work more efficiently? So if you, and that's to get back to, to Val's point about jobs to be done, if you can present um, innovation as a solution to doing things more efficiently and you can prove it will be more efficient or it will save money, then that is an opening. I think, unfortunately, a lot of innovation is presented in a way that everybody looks at it and goes, that's too big a job. I don't have time or energy to, to do that. I don't have a dedicated team within whatever my organization is to think about innovating payroll. I just need to make sure people get paid or I just need to make sure we have enough money to pay people. Um, so I think, again, that kind of like carries through as to whatever size of the business is. But I do think it's that's one of the major blockers to, to innovation, to, to innovations being adopted um, within large organizations, even if they're presented up on a platter by a fintech or, or even, you know, an incumbent bank. It comes down to making that tangible efficiency change to to the business and, and moving the dial. Um, brilliant. On that note, um, we're just going to take a quick pause here and back very shortly. Hello and welcome LFG people to Fintech Insider Launching Insider 11FS Spotlight 11FS Explores Open Mic Night After Dark 
Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. All right, welcome back. In this part of the show, we're going to take a look at how commercial banking can continue to embrace digital solutions for the better. Can we build on the infrastructure and systems we already have, however legacy they may be, or should we throw out the playbook and just completely start again? So I think the the, the first thing to talk about here is that no banking can can exist within a silo. It needs to keep up with what's going on in the global shifts and how people live and how people bank and the evolving needs um, of of the customer. Valentina, what are the major macro trends, I suppose, that 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 you're seeing, um, and is is banking at the mercy of those trends? So I think, I mean, I think there's a few things. There's the there's the macroeconomic trends. So that's things like you know, inflation, interest rates, the cost of living crisis. And I think there, you know, it's, it's so important for the customer, but it's also so important for the banks that are up, that are servicing those customers to have that real time data about how um, the customer is, is performing. Um, you know, most banks tend to sort of lump businesses into one of a dozen or so categories, right? All hotels, restaurants, bars, golf clubs, private members clubs, would kind of go into, um, you know, hospitality and leisure. And obviously, those are all completely different businesses, right? And, and we, we saw that through COVID, we've seen it through Brexit, right? The hospitality sector is is much more at the mercy of the, the labor shortages in hospitality than, than um, you know, you have in, in other um, businesses within that sector. Um, we recently completed a, a loan to um, Third Space, which is a sort of luxury uh, health and fitness company. Now, most banks would probably think right now lending to a luxury business that relies on discretionary spend uh, probably isn't a business that is doing very well. I mean, Third Space is incredibly profitable. They've got wait lists at most of their clubs. So, you know, I think that that just speaks to the fact that there is always going to be um, gems and unique cases in every in every type of business and subsector. So having that data as a business, being able to present that data to your bank, because that can then open up a number of new products and services for you. It can obviously open up credit lines, uh, give you the ability to get a loan. Um, but it's also great for you as a business, because then you can see other things that we should be doing that our peers are doing, um, you know, are there other certain parts of our business where we could be, you know, making the savings, you know, could we be, um, you know, being more efficient, um, you know, with, with, for example, our, you know, our, our team with our, our spending and so on. So, um, you know, having that access to that real time data can be um, incredibly valuable. And so I think there's a sort of the, the, the macroeconomic trends that, that banks and also their customer, commercial customers are at the mercy of. Um, I think in terms of broader macro trends, I mean, the fact is, you know, ultimate business owners, entrepreneurs are people and their expectations have changed as a result of the, you know, huge strides we've made in retail banking. Um, and I mean, you know, I say huge. The first bank I ever worked with was Metro Bank uh, back in 2010 uh, with the launch of a new bank uh, that was a bricks and mortar led model. Here we are 13 years on. And if you were a new bank coming to market saying, we're doing something completely revolutionary. We're going to make, make a bricks and mortar led business. People would probably laugh them out of the room, right? And say, what are you doing? No one, no one goes into branches anymore um, or shops as Metro Bank calls them. So I think, you know, that just shows you how much things have changed um, in, in just, you know, a decade and th- or 13 years. Um, and, and those, 
individuals then run businesses and have those same expectations. So yes, banks are absolutely at the mercy because if you're being able to freeze your card on your you know, your personal account, you want the ability to do the same on your business account. Um, You know, if you have the ability to see real time spending on your personal account, you want the same thing on your business account. So, you know, absolutely banks are at the mercy because uh, businesses are run by individuals. Yeah, it feels like we've gone from bricks and mortar to data. And you're right, as some of those macro trends like inflation and interest rate increases impact the bottom line of the business, all of a sudden the business is, is even more hungry in, in some ways for that data around how the business is performing, where they can squeeze out the margins. Um, it was really interesting what you said about being able to present the data to the bank to show that actually maybe maybe we are more profitable, in fact, that we we thought, or maybe we have more better cash flow, in fact, that we, we thought, and therefore get a better valued loan. I think that's very interesting. Pran, I'm going to come. I'm come down to 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 you on data and the availability of all of this real time data. I'm very aware that Air Wallex like works in this space. How how is this how is this availability of real time data creating either both issues um, for some of your customers and opportunities as well? I think the I think it's a fantastic thing. First and foremostly, I think it's a challenge in the sense that the volume of data is something that most people are not capable or don't have the time to be able to navigate. And so the opportunity is for people like us to be able to show them what they need to know in a way that is comprehensible, easy to access, and also fits with the jobs that they need to do as a, as a, as a business person or business owner. Um, for us, you know, when we look at the data that we're, we're sharing, of course, that relates to payment performance whether or not a payment is uh, accepted or declined, the status, you know, all the, the money in, money out that you're looking at across your global organization. And as soon as you start to become a slightly more complex organization with different entities, different currencies that you're managing, suddenly the range of possibilities becomes very, very significant in, in terms of what you could be looking at. And I think for us, when we look at the future, we're really excited about the opportunity to make that process simpler and, and much more straightforward. And actually looking into the use of things like um, AI in order to help our customers to be able to query data in ways that are that is much more kind of intuitive to, to them. So I think the explosion of data is in general a good thing. It helps us as financial services providers to offer better quality and, and more contextual services. But we also have a duty to, to help our customers to navigate it in a way that doesn't overwhelm them. Sarah, you know, d- data is is an issue um, across the piece, right? It's an issue everywhere, retail banking, across fintech, particularly around things like who who owns data? Can it be used? Um, can it be solved? Are all of these additional complications that it that it that it brings. Who who owns data? I mean, you know, would you say that we need yet more fintechs to keep other fintechs in check? Is does regulation need to come up and 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 help here? It's a really difficult one because um, <clears throat> I've I've done a lot of work on on open banking. The you know the UK's open banking or open finance. You know, as, as we're hopefully moving towards um, sector now and. There are two schools of thought about how this should work. One school is the European school, where it's like, these are the rules. This is how you will share data. You will use these standardized APIs to transmit that data under these circumstances. These are the rules. This is what you must ask for from a customer. This is the authentication, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look at what's happening in places like the US, where certainly they understand how to use data. And certainly, you know, they 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 are using it. They are just doing it off their own backs. And that has created a huge industry. Companies like Plaid, for example, you know, really, really capitalized on this. But they're now at a point where they're looking at your, you know, to your point, how do we 
how do we control this? And at the end of the day, whether whatever the rules are or the regulations are, I think what people have finally come to realise is that it is my data. I am the customer. Whether I am Sarah Kuchansky or whether I am, you know, um, I was trying to make a huge organisation, but, you know, <laughs> ASOS, I own my data. Like, it is mine. Um, and I think that kind of actually has to be the grounding principle for anybody who's going around using that data. I think there also needs to be transparency. So, yes, we can use businesses, we can use commercial data to make better, more informed decisions about the that individual. And this is often used in, often described in a very positive light. We can give you credit access where you wouldn't get credit previously. We can give you a better loan terms. Um, we can open an account for you where previously we wouldn't have been able to because we can't authenticate you, you know, in this country or whatever. The downside of that is if people and commercial banks are using customers' data to make decisions about them and it is not transparent how that is being done um so we are going to turn you down for this loan we are going to charge you this you know to Prana's point we're going to charge you this rate rather than that rate because of data we have about you but we but as a customer you don't know why that's happened um so i think the two things are my my perspective um is that the customer at the end of the day bel- owns their data. It is their data. They have created it. Ergo, it is theirs. Um, And secondly, transparency is hugely important, whether you're serving an individual, whether you're serving a freelancer, or whether you're serving a large organisation. The point being that the larger the organisation, the more likely they are to have the resources to take you to task if they find out you've been treating them unfairly, um, which makes financial services companies often more willing um, to sort of think carefully before they do anything untoward. But the third, the other point we make there is often the untoward decisions aren't deliberate, like without think, because you're not thinking about what you're doing with the data, where it's come from and how you're using it, you're making decisions that are going to come back and really bite you later on. So um, it's a minefield. (laughs) And if I could solve it, I would, (laughs) I wouldn't be here doing this. I would have sold the solution and be, uh, you know, living on an island somewhere in the, in the Pacific. Yeah, super interesting, Sarah. And I guess it gets even more complicated when you think about things like generative AI on, on, and maybe some of the impact that that's going to be making on, you know, decisioning, passing through lots of unstructured data, lots of benefits there, but also lots of pitfalls and, and issues um, with, with regulation as well. Val, I'm going to come to you. Yeah, I mean, actually, just, just on that, in generative, generative AI, um, so I'm sure some of you might have seen the, um, you know, the, the post on Twitter or on X, sorry, um, uh, earlier this week from the Spotify uh, CEO and founder um, about the fact that they've now uh, got the ability when you're doing a podcast like the one we're, we're doing right now, um, then there's the ability to switch the language to French, Italian, Spanish, German, whichever language, but with my voice. So suddenly you're hearing me and then suddenly I'm speaking Spanish, suddenly I'm speaking French, suddenly I'm speaking Italian. Think about how that's going to impact translation businesses. Right. Businesses that make, you know, these are these are businesses that might make their money by translating, you know, yeah, audio files, documents. They might be um, translating customer conversations for training purposes, a whole host of things that they might be doing. Um, and suddenly there's AI that can do what they do. So what's what does the future hold for these kind of businesses? How do they have to pivot? What's going to be the, the impact on you know their cash flow and on their their business? Um, and that's why, you know, being able to, to keep abreast of these these changes, you know, these macro trends, some of the things that the, the new technologies that might be um, might be coming to market and how those are going to impact our customers uh, in the future. You know, doing that scenario analysis and being able to see, OK, if this happens, 
then what what happens to the business um you know and 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 that's so crucial because you know so many of these changes are happening uh, so quickly and they might be driven by by the consumer right i mean you think about i don't know how uh, how would um as consumers kind of become more conscious about the environment how's that going to impact like a steakhouse chain right <laughs> which which uh, or or farming of cattle becomes more expensive and you get all these additional levies and taxes uh, how is that going to impact a business like that how's it, you know i know that there's been obviously um, some recent uh, changes uh, to the green agenda from from um, the prime minister, but again, how might uh, you know uh, the move to electric cars impact MOTs? You know, uh, MOT shops where uh, you know you have um, obviously a petrol car uh, has a lot more parts to it. Um, you know, um, several thousand more parts than than an electric car um, requires much more servicing. Whereas with an electric car, you can get you know updates as we see with Tesla um, remotely. You know, and you can have things checked in your car remotely. Um, which, which again, will have a huge impact on the, you know, the hundreds of MOT businesses across uh, the UK and, and the, you know, hundreds of thousands across across the world. It's just profound, isn't it? Um, and this is definitely a rabbit hole that we could we could talk about forever. But I, I just wanted to move on to um, the immediacy of data, which is actually related to AI and generative AI in some ways. So we can so we can keep talking about it. What, what, one of the threads that goes through this conversation is real-time data and how amazing it is both for your business and for your for your banking partners and and how by using this real-time data you're going to be able to change your business but i suppose the the critical eye to that is how able are organizations to actually utilize the real-time data that comes through to a decision um that, that that they can make and then how able therefore is an incumbent bank to be able to to utilize um some of this real-time data so to to bring this to life through an example. We heard recently about a real-time underwriting solution such as Perfius. So the Indian fintech recently raised $229 million of investment, so a huge amount of money, as they look to expand their services into US and Europe. They want to shake up the mortgage industry with their AI-powered underwriting platform, which collects data in real time and calculates offers instantly, right? So that is a classic example of fintech automation. We're using AI models. We're going to come up with you know fairer, better decisions for customers, and we can integrate you know, bang, we come up with an answer straight away. Um, so with this in mind, how important actually is immediacy um, in banking? And Pranav, I'm going to come to you um, on, on this one. You know, how how able do you think would the bank, for example, be able to actually utilize some of the insights that come out of systems um, like this? Do do the customers that, that you speak to really want to see everything to be done right here, right now? So I think speed is becoming more and more important. And it's a big guiding principle when it comes to the way that we're building our infrastructure. So we offer the ability for customers to pay out instantly in, I think, 60 countries around the world, which is something that people really value because, of course, when they make a payment, they want to know that it's going to be able to move around the world you know, as quickly as it possibly can. I don't necessarily see banks yet at the point where they can act on information as quickly as as you as you kind of suggested. I don't necessarily see them being able to patch together the various different rails that exist around the world and the processes that accompany those rails in a way that allows their customers to be able to act with real immediacy. I do think though that it's always worth sounding a slight note of caution, which is immediacy is very important, but actually I think predictability is almost as important. And so, of course, commercial you know, banking customers want things to happen instantly. But equally, if you say to them, look, I'm sorry, this isn't going to happen instantly, but it will happen within this period of time, then that is often also fine. 
And I think where traditional banking institutions have suffered is because they've struggled to both provide well, provide either immediacy or predictability. And in that, that situation, as Sarah mentioned earlier, you've got a bunch of business owners who are trying to run businesses. And if they can't do it quickly and they don't know how, how long it's going to take, it becomes extremely difficult for them to do that. And so that's where I see the opportunity for us as, as disruptors and challengers to, to come in and help and either do it really fast or say, look, it's going to take us this long and we'll stick to that. And Sarah, I'd love to get get your perspective on real time from a from a broader um, retail point of view. This this immediacy of of data that you see in mortgages. If you if you just take the customer point of view on the mortgage as opposed to the commercial banking point of view on the mortgage, yes, absolutely. I want this done now. I want my agreement ready. I want the documentation done. I don't want to have to speak to to you know lawyers and multiple banks and estate agents. I just I just want it want it done. Where, where would you say is the main the, the major kind of upcoming innovation in in real time, or just any thoughts on it? In mortgages particularly, or just, just kind of yeah, real broad, fintech? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I have thoughts about mortgages, but this is not the time or the place to go into that. Um, the, I think, I think, so I think real time, again, to, uh, to go to the point that Val made earlier, real time needs to have context. Otherwise, real time is dangerous. Um, so it's almost like saying, it's almost as simple as like saying real time buy now. Like, do you really, should you really be buying this right now? Should you probably, hang on, just stop and think for a minute. What is the context of whatever this purchase might be? And whether that is, you know, buying that, you know, whatever it is you've seen online, that handbag or that top or that, you know, pair of trousers or whatever, should you be buying that right now? What is the context for this, you know? Um, and secondly, kind of, uh, the, the, um, personalization. So that context needs to be personalized. So you need to know when you're making a real-time offer of a product, when you're making a decision that somebody can accept something in real time, what is, is it that right for them? Is that, or is that just something you've made a snap decision that we've got this right now, you know, get it now, there's only 10, it'll be gone in five minutes, whatever it is. Um, I think the, some products, and this is, you know, people who know me and listen to this will laugh because I'm a part of my researcher and analyst. And I always want to spend time looking through kind of, I don't like to make real time snap decisions. I like to take my time behind it. And then maybe I want things to happen quickly, but I don't necessarily want things pushed at me. And it goes, right, do it right, real time now, push this button and you can't get, take it back. Like if it's push this button and you can't take it back and you spent 20 quid in a pair of trousers, then that's that. But if it's push this button now and you can't take it back and it's a new credit card or, and you didn't understand the terms and conditions of that credit card, or it's changing the terms of your loan and that can go all the way up to one organization of any size or it's changing the terms of your insurance, you know, change saying change your insurance right now. Uh, we can do it in 30 seconds for you. If you haven't given them the context and the time before that point to fully understand it, you can find yourself in hot water. And I think from a from a, a bank's perspective as well, one of the reasons that they hold back on doing things in real time is just because their systems can't handle it. They get to the end of the day and they think, oh, my God, it's as simple as we've lent more money than we have. <laughs> whoops now how do we fix it um so i think that you know that was that was a, a bit of a long and winding road but i think the most important thing when you're doing anything in real time is that it must also have the point of context um and i think that's particularly dangerous as well or that's particularly important sorry when talking about embedded if you throw it embedded into the real time as well then context is 100 times more important again you're right. Actually, sometimes decisions do take slower than than sometimes we we think or get excited about um, when we think about fintech innovation. Um, and I just want to go around to the panel um, for the final for the final word. We've been talking a lot about real time data. We've been talking about contextual decisioning. What does the future of innovation look like? What's what's coming up next? 
Um, Pranav, I'm going to come to you first. Is it is uh, are embedded solutions the answer? Is there anything else? What's next for you? I think more embedded and more AI. Uh, those are the two areas where I see a huge amount of opportunity for us uh, as fintechs to do more. And I think in the embedded side, we we talk a lot about banking as a service, but in reality, I think that's only a real fraction of what embedded financial services can look like. And on the AI side, I think people have got very excited about some of the less interesting use cases, frankly. So the customer support type type use cases. I think there are really interesting use cases out there around the way in which you direct payments around the world, the way in which you enable people to interact with complex uh, product documentation or data at scale. And I think we're only just scratching the surface of, of what we can do uh, in those in those fields. I agree. Sometimes people forget the boring, but the boring is actually exciting. The world is based on boring processes that that can be can be massively optimized. Valentino, what's next? So I'm I'm sort of trying to think of um, something that not everyone else will have have mentioned, and I sort of think it's using all of those things. It's using AI. It's using embedded. It's using real time context, etc. To to actually kind of go back, whatever fifty sixty years to relationship driven banking, uh, main more Main Street versus Wall Street, um, because for customers of this size, the relationship is so important. You know, if you, if you if you want to cross-sell as a bank, you need to have those relationships with the customers. If you're a business that wants to borrow tens of millions of pounds, you're going to do it from a bank that you have a relationship with. And there's sort of this irony that we have, you know, relationship managers who don't seem to have relationships with anybody anymore um, because everything's sort of centralized uh, decision-making. Um, so I'd sort of say it's using a lot of the, the tools, technologies, new processes to go back a few decades in some ways uh, with with uh, relationships. Um, I think those are just so important for customers of this size. It's how you're going to build, it's how you build that trust. It's how you, um, you know, get that customer to to ultimately want to use more of your products and services and stay with you for, you know, for decades. Very interesting in some ways, rewinding the clock. Sarah, um, echoing what the other two have said or what's what's next? I think building on them, probably, um, there's two things for me. One is responsibility. Um, and I use that term rather than ESG because ESG is a minefield and it means many different things to many different people. But I think innovation needs to be responsible. I think you need to think about what impact it's going to have and on who. Um, and that links to my other point, which is what people need to ask why more often. Why are we doing this? Then you can talk about the how. Then you can say, we are doing it. Okay, how do we do it? We use generative AI or whatever. But the question that I don't think gets asked often enough is, why are we doing this? Is this just innovation for innovation's sake? Um, and that takes you back, that takes you kind of deeper, I think, into the, the level of innovation that we talk about a lot and always have done at 11FS, was what's the culture? Like, what is what is the culture of innovation? And how are you getting to your decisions? And what is the process? And are you rethinking your processes? Um, and that just kind of comes back round again to this question of like, why? Why are you doing it? And if the answer is because everybody else has got one, that's not a good enough answer. And on that note, the big why that wraps up today's discussion. Um, thank you so much for joining me, um, everyone. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Pranav? Uh, airwallex.com. And Sarah? Uh, I am still hanging around on X or whatever we're calling it today at Sarah Kachansky, uh, but you can also find me at Threads on the same handle and on LinkedIn. And Valentina? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to find out more about Oaknorth, it's oaknorth.com. 
And you can find me on LinkedIn as well at DavidBG or on 11FS.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you like what you've heard, follow our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.